please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses of Colossians 2 together this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand as I read this for us. The Word of God, I meant to call it a resource, but it's truly a, an amazing resource. It's active, it's living. This is the God who spoke us into existence, the God who upholds us with His Word. This is Him speaking to us. So let's put our full attention on this. Colossians 2 verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. God, it's always wise before pause and to ask for your help because apart from you, we can do nothing, which includes understanding your word and receiving it receiving it in a way that it would take root and impact us and then we would subsequently bear fruit. If, that, if that's going to be our experience, if we're going to be fruitful followers of Jesus, it's going to be because you are authoring that fruitful, fruitfulness. And so we ask that you would do that miraculous work in us now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I listened to Stanley Tucci's book, Taste. For those of you who don't know who Stanley Tucci is, uh, he's played a lot of different roles in a lot of different movies, but he was Caesar Flickerman in The Hunger Games, if that helps you put a, a face with a name. At any rate, Stanley Tucci, he is a foodie, hence the name of this book. It's a, Really, it's his memoir, Taste. He goes to a lot of trouble uh, in his life, ever since he was a kid even, to, to find food that tastes amazing. Uh, he, he pursues qualities and pastas and vegetables. He's all about food. And uh, Stanley doesn't just consume food. He loves to cook food. And of course, many of you love to cook or you have had to cook. And so you know it's, it's not easy. Cooking food is hard work. It's, it's a struggle at times. But for Stanley, as you read through this book, you, you get this very prominent sense that it's a joy for him. Uh, cooking's hard work, but it is a joyful, joyful struggle for him, and he is always engaged in this joyful struggle. In the book, uh, Stanley talks about this period of time where he gets diagnosed with mouth cancer, which is quite a problem for anybody, but especially for someone who loves food so much, uh, it's, it's tragic and it's ironic. He gets mouth cancer, and so for this period of time where he's dealing with mouth cancer and getting treated for this, he has to he has to consume food through a feeding tube. And even during this phase of his life, he still joyfully uh, prepared food that was, that was really high quality and, and good tasting. He, he labored diligently to create good tasting food, even though he couldn't taste it. And he says, I did that because I, I wanted to create good food because if someone else in my family 
or a friend were to eat what I had made, I'd want it to taste good. It really matters to me. And of course, he would take whatever he made and he'd puree it and water it down so he could you know, put it into the tube and it would go into his stomach. Um, but he was so committed, even during this period of time where he was battling mouth cancer. After he goes through that season of his life, he's reflecting on that, that period of time, that struggle, that painful experience. And he says this, I have chosen to write about this painful and ironic experience in my life because my illness and the brutal side effects of the treatment caused me to realize that food was not just a huge part of my life, it basically was my life. Food at once grounded me and took me to other places. It comforted me and challenged me. It was part of the fabric that made up my creative self and my domestic self. It allowed me to express my love for the people I loved and make connections with new people that I might come to love. And that's who Jesus is for the Apostle Paul. You could take that statement from Stanley Tucci and replace the word Jesus or the name Jesus with food. Because Paul would say, you know, I've been through a lot of struggles. I, I have struggled, I have toiled in my love for the bride of Jesus. And I write to the churches. I write about my painful struggles because in those struggles and in all those hardships, I realize that Jesus isn't just a huge part of my life. He is my life. Uh, Jesus at once grounds me and takes me on all these adventures to, to all these new places, even through risks and, and dangers and perils. Uh, Jesus at the same time comforts me and always challenges me. Jesus is the person who, who prompts me to express my love for the people I already love, and he pushes me to make connections with, with new people that I will come to love. And it's a great struggle. It's a joyful struggle, but it is a struggle. And that's what Paul emphasizes in verse 1. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I, I have for you. For you, the people at the uh, community in Colossae, there's this neighboring community, Laodicea. The, these letters Paul wrote to Laodicea and Colossae, uh, they were shared letters. These, these communities shared these letters because Paul wanted all of them to know uh, of his great struggle for the bride of Christ. He says, even the, the people who haven't met me, even the people who have not seen me face to face. I want all of you to know how much I am struggling for you. Now, why is Paul telling us this? Is he being, is he being manipulative? Uh, is he trying to get us to feel pity for him? Oh, poor Paul. He's, he's working so hard. And he wants to make sure we know how hard he's working. Is he trying to make us feel guilty? Well, it's certainly possible humans do this. I do this. Whenever I see dishes at my house that, that I didn't make, I didn't make these dishes messy, um, I sometimes do the dishes in a loud sort of so everybody knows kind of way, right? I'll, I'll, I'll wash a pot and then I'll, I'll clang it and bang it into the, the cabinet because I want everyone to know, even if we have guests perhaps, even people who haven't seen me face to face, I want them all to know how great my struggle is because, you know, I'm doing all this hard work for y'all and you should know. You should know how hard I'm working. Uh, is, is, is Paul perhaps, you know, kind of doing a humble brag here? You know, is he, is he really 
mostly ambitious to downplay his privilege? Is that, is that what he's doing? So, so like if you got in my car, my, my 2014 Toyota Corolla, and you said, man, this is a nice car. You have a, re you have a really nice car. What are they paying you here at ECPC? You could buy such a swanky car. Well, I, I feel really nervous that you're going to think I'm some, like a pretentious snob, like I'm a self-indulgent, you know, swanky car owner. So the second you say, Tyler, you have a nice car, I'm not going to say, oh, well, thanks. Yeah, it is nice. I, I'm too insecure to let that slide. I'm going to say, oh, no, my car, it has a lot of miles on it. I bought it used. The trunk latch is broken. The seats are stained. The glove box doesn't always work right. It's not that nice because I'm just so bothered <laughs> that you might think, that I'm some kind of self-indulgent big shot. So I need you to know how much I'm struggling so that you don't ever assume I have it easy. So what's going on here with Paul? Is Paul's attitude begrudging or sanctimonious? No, not at all. Paul wants people to know how great his struggle is because it's a joyful struggle. And he wants to work with you for joy. And he wants to invite you into his life of joy. And yeah, there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of hard work. But it's most primarily, it's a joyful struggle. In, in that book I mentioned, Stanley Tucci's memoir, he talks about this Italian dish. It's called timpano. I'd never heard of this. Maybe some of you know what this is. Uh, his mom, like any Italian mom, I mean, she cooks. She, she makes food and then more food and then more food. It's, it's just an abundance of food when you go to the Tucci house for dinner. And uh, Stanley tells this story. He says, every Christmas, there, there would be an abundance of food. Every family member would bring more than enough food to feed the entire group. And then on top of that, my mom would bring timpano, which is this very involved, uh, rigorous kind of Italian dish. And every year, Stanley and his wife would say, Mom, you don't need to bring this. We, we have tons of food. It, this is such... A, a laborsome, time-consuming dish to create. You don't need to go to all the trouble. Okay, Mom? And every year, Mrs. Tucci would bring Timpano. She, she, she had to bring it. Now, now, why was she doing that? Was she doing that to, to be self-righteous, to say, I'm better than all of you? My, my Italian cuisine trumps your Italian cuisine. Or was she doing it so that everybody would pity her and feel bad for her? No, she was doing it because she loves to cook for her family. And she loves to go to all the trouble. She loves to make this dish for her children and her relatives. And she, she wants to infect other people with her excitement and her zeal and her joy. Even though, yes, it is, it is a struggle. It's a lot of hard work. And this does make an impact on Stanley. In 1996, Stanley directed and starred in a film called Big Night. I don't know if any of y'all have seen that film, but I've never seen it. I watched a clip of it on YouTube this past week, and apparently uh, it's, it's the story of this Italian chef, and in this big crescendo scene, this chef decides to make timpano, and it's this long process. It's tedious. It's complicated. It is so much work, and yet he goes to all the trouble so he can feed the, these, these family members, these friends, and so that their relationships can be enriched by this shared food experience as they, as they savor this Italian dish. And, and, and Stanley says, that, that's, that's me conveying how important it was uh, for, for my mom to, to invite me into this joyful struggle. 
It, it rubbed off on me. She infected me with her joy. And look, I know all of you have something like this, or at least something that, that's kind of heading in this direction. Something that you love, right? You don't get paid to do this thing. In fact, you probably pay to do this thing. And you pursue it, and it's a lot of work. I mean, you spend a lot of time and energy and money pursuing this thing. And if people joined you in, in the pursuit of loving this thing and enjoying this thing, um, they may say, wow, you go, this is a lot of work. You are really struggling in a joyful way to pursue this thing that you love so much, you know? For, uh, for Alex Parman, we know it's, uh, it's the Tennessee Volunteers, right? He loves the Tennessee Volunteers, and, and he, he has gone to games, like tailgated at these games, and, and you might say, well, this is a lot of work, especially if you're not a fan of the Tennessee Volunteers. But if you love them, you're like, it's the joy set before me, right? Uh, for, for some of y'all know Laura Marty, she's a rock climber. I see her do this all the time. She's just like a bubbly personality. She invites people in to this rigorous, grueling hobby of hers called rock climbing. I mean, it's painful. It's, it's like torture. And yet, she would say, no, no, it's joyful. And I want to bring you in on that. I want to collaborate and partner with you in this very toilsome, struggling thing that I love. Right? For Michael Domross, it's bicycles. He loves bicycles. Bicycles are pain in the booty, right? I mean, they break down, the chain comes off, you have to constantly do maintenance. But man, it, there's a joy there, right? Riding around on a bike, there's something fun about that. There's something fun about, you know, uh, fixing up a bike and then giving it to somebody and say, here, th this is a present to you. This is something that I want to share with you, right? We all have something that we love. It's a lot of work and we pursue it. And as I'm alluding to in these illustrations, it's not enough that we just have this love for ourselves. We want to spread the love, right? It's natural. If I love it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just overflow in my love for it. It's going to spill out onto other people. I want, I'm going to want other people to, to share in this thing that I love. I'm going to naturally promote it and proselytize for it. I want other people to be infected with, with a shared love and passion for this thing. And that's what Paul's getting at here in verse 2. He says, why do I want you to know about my great struggle? I, I want you to know so that our hearts can be encouraged and so that we could be knit together in love. That's why I want you to know of my great struggle. What cultivates a truly vibrant, enriching, unified community? What is it primarily? Is it a community that first and most primarily says, well, here's what we're against. You know, here's what we're afraid of. And so we've, we, we've all, no, that, that's a toxic community. That community is not sustainable and, and most, most sad to say it's a community that doesn't have any joy. If you're defined as a person or as a community by what you're against, what you're guarding against and protecting against, that, that's not... That's not the Christ-centered community that is vibrant and enriching. What cultivates a truly enriching community is a shared joyful struggle, right? A, a community that's knit together and encouraging, that occurs when we have a collective pursuit of a common goal as the joy set before us. So I don't have to guilt you into doing the hard thing. I don't have to hound you and hassle you because... You love it. You enjoy it. 
It's, it's not this begrudging thing. It's this joyful thing. And this is how Jesus lives his life. Even going to the cross, we're told, that was the joy set before him. It was grueling. There was a lot of, of complicated anguish going on there. But it was the joy set before him. And he's always leading his disciples down this path of, I want to work with you for your joy. I want to invite you in on the joyful struggle. So later today, you should go home and read the last four paragraphs of Luke chapter 9. This is just a good sampling of how we see this emphasis of the joyful struggle in the life and leadership of Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, you're going to see people coming up to Jesus, and they're going to be saying to Jesus, hey, we're ready to follow you. We want to follow you. We want to be your disciples. And he's going to say to them, you need to count the cost. It's good that you have a zeal to follow me, but you need to understand it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a struggle. So in a, in a really direct, kind of provocative way, Jesus says, hey, before you decide to follow me, you should know something. You know, foxes, like wild animals have holes. Birds have nests. But I don't have a place I call home. So, so if you really need to prioritize like a predictable life with prosperity and comforts and commodities, you should know that if you follow me, I'm a kind of a vagabond rabbi. I'm a, I'm a sojourning, traveling leader. And that may, not, that may not align with your preferences for prosperity and predictability. And when Jesus says that to those potential followers, he's not trying to discourage them. He's not discouraging them, but he is inviting them into the joyful struggle. And then he gives an illustration. At the end of Luke 9, he says, let me illustrate for you. Let me, let me give you a living, breathing, real-life illustration of what the joyful struggle looks like. So he takes a child, and he puts a, a little child in the midst of his, become like this child. Think of a child on a snow day, for example. Snow day is hard work. I mean, even going outside, like you have to get all suited up. You can't just go outside. You have to get gloves on and a hat on. And your mom says, get your coat on. And it has to be kind of a waterproof coat. You can't just wear like any coat. And, and you get all suited up. And then you go outside. And all day long, these kids work so hard. Like they come up the hill. They walk. They get so many steps on the pedometer on these days. They run around the neighborhood. They trudge up the hill so they can slide down it. They make snowballs. They make snow forts. It's cold. They're weathering all the, the elements of this snow day but it's the joy set before them, right? It's a struggle, but it's a joyful struggle. And that's why Jesus uses people like children to say they, they so thoroughly embody what I'm talking about. And that's the paradigm of Jesus. That's the paradigm of Christian maturity, right? As the apostolic leaders are debating what greatness means, Jesus says, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be childlike. And when Jesus does this, when he emphasizes that type of thing, some of, this, uh, some of the disciples you see in the end of Luke 9, they're concerned, they're perhaps hesitant to say this to Jesus' face, but they're concerned that Jesus is not right, he's not being as wise as he should be, perhaps Jesus isn't taking things seriously enough. And so they, they start to ask Jesus about some other ministries, um, just kind of to test to see how serious he's being. You know, is he taking the seriousness of the kingdom of heaven? Um, is he taking that seriously? 
And so they, they talk to him about some of these other groups, other ministries that are, that are around. And um, they're concerned. You know, these groups don't do it quite the way we do it. Their, their style, their approach is different than ours. And Jesus' response, again, underscores this, this joyful struggle. He says, essentially, we are not going to be defined by what we're against. That we aren't going to define our community by how we get it right and these other communities don't. We're not going to be defined by what we're afraid of, you know, what's lurking out there that's, that's different than what we prefer. We are going to be a community defined by joy, the joyful struggle. In other words, we're not spreading fear. We're, we're spreading the love of Jesus. So a really robust example of this is this theme of exile, this, this identity marker of all followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, the church is, refer is referenced as exiles. Uh, believers in Christ are, are identified as sojourners. So that means you take all of the imagery of exile and sojourning that is so emphatically on display in the Old Testament, and you say, that should be our attitude. What most dominantly informs our posture and our attitude as Christians in this world is, is the storyline of exile and sojourning. So people like Daniel, the exile Daniel, or people like his, his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let's zoom in on those stories for just a moment. Were, were Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were they driven or defined by fear? Well, they could have been. They certainly could have been. I mean, the Babylonians were invading. And they could, have, they could have allocated all of their energy to protecting against the invasion of Babylon or, or the scary, pagan, non-Christian darkness of the Babylonian Empire, right? That could have been the primary focus of their life. Now, now they certainly weren't on board with all of the cultural norms in Babylon, but that doesn't define them. What defines them is this, this bold approach of living by faith in a God who can subversively use them as salt and light and agents and ambassadors in the Babylonian empire. So, so when the question comes to Daniel and his buddies about whether or not they're going to attend Nebuchadnezzar's school, his pagan public school, they say, well, yeah, we'll... We'll not only attend, we'll graduate magnum cum laude. What about, what if Nebuchadnezzar offers them a job in his government? They say, yeah, we'll, we'll work for you. We won't agree to do all the things you tell us to do. And if you need to throw us into the lion's den or into the fiery furnace, by all means, you're welcome to give that a shot. It probably won't work <laughs> because God loves to preserve us and save us. Kind of shows off in the face of Nebuchadnezzar on a few occasions. But, but they don't live by fear. They're not dominated by fear. They're not, they're not incessantly trying to avoid all of, of the potholes of the Babylonian culture because they are so fixated on God and subsequently they can live as joyful servants, people joyfully struggling in their calling which comes to them from God. And, and I think it's safe to say that people like Daniel and his buddies 
They experienced what's described in verses 2 and 3. These guys didn't just know about the mysteries of God because they read it in the Bible. These guys really had to live by faith. They had to take some risks. And, and they seem to be guys who know by faith. And so they experience all the riches of the full assurance of the knowledge of God's mysteries. And, and Paul says, that's what I want y'all to know. But if you're going to know those those riches and the full assurance. And, and if you're going to steward the mysteries of God, you're going to have to get in on the joyful struggle. You're going to have to feel, feel the joy of Jesus in the midst of all the various things he, he wants to invite you into, which is going to involve hard work and hardship and struggle. Verses four and five, Paul says, I say this in order that no one would delude you with plausible arguments. I want you to stand firm in the faith. I rejoice to see you standing firm in the faith as opposed to capitulating to the plausible arguments and becoming deluded. This is a huge part of the joyful struggles, holding firm to the faith that we have in Christ. And that's, that's contrasted with the plausible sounding arguments. Now, what are the plausible arguments? Since I've already used Daniel as an, as an illustration, let me just Talk about that for a second. What were the plausible arguments in the days of Daniel? Well, you go back and you read uh, Jeremiah, right? Before the Babylonian uh, armies invaded, there were lots of what Jeremiah would call false prophets who were, who were preaching very popular sermons. <laughs> they, they were proclaiming things that sounded very nice to our our ears. We would have been very tempted to, to hear and receive and embrace the, the storylines and the narratives of the false prophets because they were making very plausible arguments. They'd say stuff like, look, God does not want us, his people, to, to live in exile under the Babylonians. I mean, the Babylonians, they're not a Christian nation. God certainly wouldn't want for us wouldn't want that for us. Sounds very plausible, right? I mean, God at best, I mean, at worst, um, he might have us deal with this Babylonian thing for two years, max, two years max. And that sounds really nice to us. Sounds plausible, sounds pleasing. And then in contrast with that, you had the prophet Jeremiah, who, by the way, was a true prophet, not a false prophet. And he was saying to guys like Daniel and Shadrach and all those other guys, he was saying, hey, you're going to go into exile for 70 years. Not two years, 70 years. And while you're there, I don't want you to just grumble and be grouchy the whole time. I, what I want you to do is I want you to plant vineyards, build houses, get married, have kids, have grandkids. I want you uh, to pray for and participate in the prosperity and peace of the Babylonian culture. I don't want you to capitulate to all the things that they're about, but the thing that should really define you as, as my people, it should be the joy of struggling through this exile and this period of sojourning. Plausible arguments come in all kinds of shapes and sizes, all these different versions of plausible arguments, but the thing they all have in common is fear. All plausible arguments or some form of fear-mongering. They're all orbiting around 
this, this theme of fear because we can be driven by fear. We can be manipulated in, in very effective ways by fear. Fear that we will lose our religious freedom or fear that our traditions uh, or our codes of decorum will be devalued or dismissed. Fear that we'll get canceled. People won't like us. We will become unpopular. We will lose our privileges or our power or our prosperity. Fear that we won't feel safe. We really need to feel safe. We will justify anything on the basis of, well, this makes me feel safe. Here's a big one in the days of Paul. Fear that you haven't done enough. As he's writing this letter to the church in Colossae and especially as he writes his letter to the church in Galatia, you see this in a big way. Um, there was this group that followed Paul around wherever he traveled. They were called the party of the circumcision. And so Paul would go to a community and he would preach Christ crucified and you live by faith in Christ. And then this group would come in and they'd say, live by faith in Jesus, that's good. But you should be afraid. You should be concerned that that's not quite enough. And so we have to add to Paul's message that maybe you need to perform for God a little bit. You should be concerned that you haven't done enough. Maybe add to that, um, you know, adhere to a certain version of uh, the, the, the legal code. Like get circumcised and do some of these extra things. Because that's what it takes to be assured of God's favor, of God's love for you. And Paul if you read the letter to the church in Galatia, especially, uh, he's extremely angry about that plausible sounding argument, but which is in fact a false, a false teaching. Paul would say, look, faith, holding firm to the faith, it is the opposite of fear. Receiving the love of Jesus through faith means that you've received the perfect love of God, which Paul would say casts out all fear a huge part of the joyful struggle. Um, here's my challenge to you. Later today, I just referenced the, the letter to the Galatians. Later today, before the 49ers and the Chiefs play in the Super Bowl, read Galatians. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a letter. Like When you get a letter in the mail, like you don't read it over the span of a few weeks. right? Just sit down and read it. <laughs> read the letter. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. And pay attention you know, highlight things, underline things if that helps you pay attention and stay engaged. But notice how aggressively Paul is arguing for joy. He, he's arguing against fear, the slavery of living by fear. And he's saying, if you live by faith in Jesus, it means you're living in step with the joy of Jesus. You're collaborating with Jesus. You're united with Jesus in the joyful struggle. At one point in the letter, he just flat out says to the church, where's your joy? What happened to your joy? And then he kind of explains, well, you've let these uptight legalists come in and rob you of your joy and enslave you into these systems of life that are, are oppressive. And I, I won't get into all the details. He says some stuff that you're not going to be comfortable with, stuff that if you were his editor before he sent the letter, you'd say, hey, we may want to, we may want to dial some of this stuff down. You seem pretty worked up, Paul. <laughs> so it'll be entertaining, if nothing else. Paul, in his letter to the church in, uh, to Corinth, he says this. I love this line. 2 Corinthians 1.24. It's one of my favorite sentences in, in the entire Bible. Paul says, we do not lord it over you. 
Like as an apostle, Paul's not attempting to throw his weight around and be this authoritarian dictator. He says, no, what, what I want is to work with you for your joy so that you would stand firm in your faith. That's what I want for you. I want to work with you for your joy. I don't want to hound you and hassle you and badger you. Ideally, I'd like to come alongside of you and partner with you and collaborate with you for our mutual joy. That is what is, that is, what is driving my, my pastoral care of you. That's what Paul would say. And you guys experience this. I mean, what about your marriage? Ideally, what do you want for your marriage? It's going to be a struggle. We all know marriage is tough. You're going to hit some potholes. You're going to hit some, some choppy water, whatever metaphor you want to use. But what you want is you want to partner with your spouse for, for joy, right? We want to work with each other for our mutual joy. We want to pursue, like, go to, go to the counseling sessions or go on that marriage retreat or go take a vacation and just, you know, sort of reinvest, get curious and renew your, your interest in this person that you've committed to until one of you dies and, and say, let's work with each other for, for joy and it'll be a struggle. It, it's not going to be easy. It's a joyful struggle. What about parenting? It, it's hard. Parenting's hard. Not just when they're infants in diapers. I mean, it's hard the whole way through. So what do you want? You want to work with your spouse to collaborate in this calling of parenthood for the joy of the children, for, for your joy as their parents. Eventually, you get to this stage called being a grandparent. I'm, I'm not there yet, but apparently that's where you really, if you haven't had it prior to that, like that's where some of the joy flavors really start to emerge because you can give the kids back and you don't have to do all the heavy lifting. See, we know what this is like. What about you, um, you children of aging parents? What do you want? As you care for your parents when they get into their, their older years, you want to collaborate with your siblings for the joy, right? This is an honor to be able to care for your aging parents. And you want to not do that in a begrudging way. You want to do that in a joyful way. You want to collaborate with other people to, to build this, this theme of joy and to engage in this joyful struggle. Now, I, I realize, I mean, some of y'all have been through some intense struggles. Really, I mean, I know some specifics for a lot of y'all, and it's been rigorous. There, there are some things in your story um, that are just almost too hard to talk about. They've been so hard. They've been so grueling. But you have to ask yourself, no matter what your struggle is, the big imperative question is, how is God cultivating joy? Like we sing this in Jesus, I, my cross have taken. We sing joy to find in every station, something still to do or bear. That's true. Sometimes it's hard to find that joy in that station of life. But God says, it's true. I want to work with you for your joy. And it's not always going to be clear. Uh, many moments it's mysterious and confounding, but this is true. God says, I want to work with you for your joy. If my son could pursue the cross as the joy set before him, I am I'm cultivating that same theme in your life. Let, let me end with a... Uh, a reference to the office. It's been at least a couple weeks. 
so we're overdue. So even if you haven't seen the television show The Office, you'll, you'll be able to follow this. The Office, it's this TV show about these employees of a paper supply company in Pennsylvania. And so like in any work environment, you know, you're obligated to show up. You got to show up to work. And that's a struggle. Some days you don't want to get out of bed. Just getting to the office. Oh, that's a struggle. Okay. And then you get there and your boss, Michael, whoever your boss is, he's annoying. He's not, he's not the most brilliant guy. You have to endure a lot of his shenanigans. It's frustrating. Your coworkers can be challenging. The people you work with, I mean, at a minimum, they have different personalities. They have different preferences. So that's going to rub you the wrong way on occasion. Sometimes it gets real dramatic, like, you know, you're leading a meeting and one of them says, did I stutter? And you're going to have to go into this whole conflict resolution mode. It's dramatic. It's hard. A couple of the people in the office end up getting married, Jim and Pam, and and. Their marriage is like your marriage. It, I mean, they have some struggles. There's moments where it looks like, I don't know if this marriage is going to make it. it. This is intense. I mean, I thought this was supposed to be a comedy, a lighthearted sitcom. And it's like, you're taking us into relational, rigorous territory here. And, it, and it's difficult. So it's a struggle. But ultimately, what do you find? What do you find in that show? It's a great illustration of what God's doing. It's joyful. I mean, all throughout, but especially at the end, like Dwight and Jim are like best friends. Jim's his best man. I mean, Michael is like actually a good boss. Like we love each other. And it's not because we're all the same and it's easy. No, it's a struggle. But man, through it all, through all the struggles, it's like even by God's common grace through a, a secular comedy, we, we could be reminded that, no, God does this. He cultivates joy through pretty intense struggles, through all kinds of ups and downs in life, all kinds of hard twists and turns, because that's who he is. He's a relational God, and he wants to knit us together and enrich us through every season, every situation of life, because he's committed to working with us for our joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this emphasis on joy. I thank you that there are these definitive moments in the Gospels where you say, enter my joy. I want you to experience the love that casts out all, all fear. Uh, you want us to be bold and confident, not because of any intrinsic sufficiency in ourselves, but because of the sufficiency of Jesus and the scandal of your love for sinners. And so you took sinners, you took guys like Levi the tax collector who had been stealing money, had been living a horrible, wretched life. And you say, I want you to follow me. I want you um, not just to be saved. I want you to become a collaborator, a, a fellow participant in the joyful struggle of the Christ. And that's what you're inviting us into, all of us uh, here today. We pray this would happen in our lives, and we ask this in your name. Amen.